Please take your Bibles again and join me in the book of Ephesians, today, chapter 3. Ephesians, chapter 3, we'll begin reading in a moment, in verse 1. You'll recall as we have uh, considered the first two chapters of Ephesians that uh, the Apostle Paul, who writes here, wants the church to know that God has invested heavily in them and that he wants them to not only know of that investment, but to understand the purpose of that investment and to respond in the manner in which we should in light of the investment. We all have things in our homes or our lives that are valuable, and we expect certain, uh, if you will, deference to those things. I've often joked about uh, when Susan and I got married, we, we registered at, you know, the, whatever you do with that. You know, you know what, you ladies know all about that. The guys just have to tote the loot home. Um, so we, we registered for China. We got China. I think we've used it. Well, I, I hesitate to say. If it was more than three, I'd, I'd be shocked. So we have China. We have, we have, at least we have pieces of China. We had crystal, too. That was those fancy glasses. They, they didn't last long. They, they didn't last hardly at all. They, turns out those things will break like glass. I mean, they'll, they will break. The point I'm going to make, of course, is that when you have this stuff, you treat it with respect or you treat it with honor or you, 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 you don't let the children or the inexperienced or the clumsy fool around with it. And you, every time it's brought out, you, you get the lecture, right? Now, this is that, so don't do that in light of this, so forth. Well, in a, in a sense, that's what the apostle's doing in Ephesians. He's reminding us that God has done something that is profound. And that, that profound act on the part of God should be honored. It should be treated wonderfully, beautifully, carefully. And we should respond as if we understand its value. So, in particular, he's going to celebrate and he's going to pull out a word that is not familiar. It, it is familiar to us, to our ears, but it, it means something else in our context than it means here. And in the span of these verses, he's going to use the word mystery four times. Mystery. Now, for us, a mystery is Agatha Christie. It's Nancy Drew. It's some crime drama. That's a mystery. But for the Bible, it has nothing to do with crime. It has nothing to do with, with evil. It has nothing to do with any of that. It, it has to do with things that we didn't know. I've used the illustration already in our first service this morning uh, over across the way of algebra. Algebra. Do you know what algebra is to a third grader? It's a mystery. You know why it's a mystery? Not because it's evil, not because it's sinister, not because it's, it, not, because it's not true, not because it's not coming. 
But when you're in the third grade, you don't do algebra because you don't know about algebra. It's one of the great joys of third grade. You don't have to do that. I'm in a text string with my grandchildren. My, my daughter's putting me, their grandfather, in a text string with nine children. They have tablets. Well, my, my youngest is two. Okay, he doesn't have a tablet. But anyway, they have these tablets, and they don't have access to them all the time, but they're all the time drawing things and saying, what do you think this is? Which is the most silly waste of my time you'll ever imagine. But, you know, that's what you do. You know, so there you go. I'm, I enjoy that. And so the text string between my seventh grade and sixth grade grandchildren this week involved complaining about their math. So it's very fresh for me this week, watching my grandchildren complain about their math. Because that's what people do. Real people who take math gripe. If you don't gripe about math, what are you, a robot or something? People don't like math until they do. So algebra is a mystery to a third grader, but it's coming. You're going to figure it out. You're going to understand. It's going to be introduced to you. So when he brings that up, he's going to use the word mystery, and he's going to point out that Isaiah knew that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. And he said so in chapter 7. And Micah knew that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And he said so in his prophecy. But Micah said nothing about a virgin birth. And Isaiah said nothing about a Bethlehem morning. Why is that? And the answer is, as we're going to see, is because it was a mystery. It hadn't been revealed completely to them. But you, you have the whole story virgin Bethlehem you've got the whole story you've got more than Isaiah ever had now the apostle is going to say because you have been given this treasure this privilege because this mystery is no longer hidden from you. There is a responsibility for you. There's an accountability for you. You don't see through a glass darkly like those Old Testament prophets did because you have the whole story. And that should lift your life. That should give you 
that should motivate you, that should give you strength, that should give you earnestness, or if you will, that should make you sober-minded about God. Because you know more, you understand more, you've been entrusted with more, you've been gifted with more. And you're going to see that as we read this, this section. So let's start reading in Ephesians 1, rather chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is, and that's an important grammatical construction. He's now, what follows that is, is the definition of the mystery. So he's going to define the mystery. Here it is. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. I want you to note uh, three things. There are several things worthy of thinking here, but we, in the interest of time, we'll just focus on three. I want you to note, first of all, that this section, verse 1, all the way through verse 13, begins and concludes with a reference to Paul's suffering and his takeaway is, I don't want you to be discouraged by my suffering because my suffering is for your glory. So I want you to see that the suffering of the apostle for the Ephesians is in part because of the value that God has placed on the Ephesians. I want you to think about the implications of suffering for the gospel or for Christ or in the will of God or in the purpose and plan of Christ for your life and recognize that that is not in any way a devaluation of your person. Your suffering is not because God is angry. Your suffering is not because you're unimportant. Your suffering is not because God has abandoned you. Your suffering is not because God has some agenda or vendetta against you or because God is bored with you or because God has become distracted and forgotten you. None of that is correct. Rather, your suffering, if you are suffering, is like the Apostle Paul's suffering, 
It is part and parcel to what it means to be a follower of Christ and one who has uh, the identity of Christ because there's more going on in your life than you know. Notice what he says in verse 1. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ on behalf of you Gentiles. Now, if you stop there and you don't understand the context, that sounds a bit of an, an accusatory statement, doesn't it? I'm a prisoner because of you. And in a sense, it is. But that's not what he means by that. He, he says, I'm a prisoner on behalf of you as a result of my investment in you, as a result of my interaction with you, as a result of my time with you, as a result of my actions toward you. I'm a prisoner. I'm a prisoner. And he wants them not only to be aware of that, but not to be discouraged. Notice he concludes verse 13. So, so, the word so is a word of summation or summary. So, after I've spent 12 verses, now so. So, I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you because this is your glory. This is your glory. Again, we use the illustration of just how, how do you know what something is worth? It's valuable. It's only as valuable as what somebody else will pay for it. So you may think your car is worth $2 million, but if you're only going to get $200 for it, then it's worth $200. No matter how many more zeros you attach to it. The value of something is based upon what people will pay for it. Or to say another way, the value of something is based on what people will do to sacrifice in order to acquire it or to protect it. Think about that. You've got a home or someplace, and you probably insure it. Why do you insure it? Because it's valuable. You've got a vehicle, and you insure it. Why do you insure it? Because the government requires you to. No, you insure it because you don't want to lose it. You want to keep it. You want to protect it. So you know the value of something based on the amount of sacrifice you put into that. And oftentimes our sacrifice is measured in dollars. But not always. Christ came and gave himself for us. That's a sacrifice. And what is the sacrifice? His entire life, his entire being, he sacrifices. Is there any price higher than that? No, that's the point, isn't it? How valuable are you? Well, you can judge how valuable you are on the basis of the price paid for you. And what is the price paid for you? The blood of Christ, the death of Christ, the identity, the being of Christ. Christ died so that you might have life. How valuable is your life? So Paul says in regards to these Ephesians, don't be discouraged because I'm in prison because of you on behalf of you. Don't be discouraged at my suffering. Don't be downcast. Don't think that somehow God has blown it or that God has forgotten me or that somehow my actions toward you were wrong or my actions toward you were flawed or my actions or toward you were somehow second rate. 
or that we had a plan, but I ended up in jail, and obviously the plan was flawed. People all the time want to suggest that, in fact, God only blesses with Daniel-type stories. I read from Daniel earlier. Daniel is cast into the lion's den, and he is rescued. Paul is cast into prison, and he is not rescued. Same God, same gospel, different result. But people want to cipher what God is up to. They want to determine based on some sort of positive earthly result. If God means by his safety for Daniel that God is now obligated to secure the earthly safety of every other subsequent follower of God, then he would owe an apology to his own son who did not receive the same rescue in this life. And to so many other martyrs that we could name. John the Baptist had his head severed from him, and we could go on from there. But in fact, that's not what God means. Don't be ashamed. Don't be discouraged. Don't, don't be paralyzed by the fact that if you follow God, if you do the right thing, you, you may end up in prison, or that you may suffer in some way, or you may face persecution. We don't know a lot about physical persecution in the Western world, in North America. I, I don't know a single person who's ever been jailed in America for their preaching of the gospel, etc. We could debate that. <laughs> I'm immediately thinking of a circumstance. But nonetheless, I want to suggest to you that you're, you're not in jail. You're not going to be in jail because that's just not where we are. Now, that may come, admittedly, and it certainly has happened. But right where we are today, that's, that's not our context. So that's not what we're thinking about. But here it is. The apostle is preaching to Gentiles, and he's telling them the good news, and he is persecuted, persecuted. I'm reminded that uh, he, he lived in a world where discouragement or persecution would come regularly. He lived in, a, in the Roman world, obviously, the Caesar is anti-God. The Caesar is completely atheistic, completely unsympathetic un whatsoever to Christianity. Uh, he, he sees Christianity as a threat to the political peace, uh, as is the case with most secular-minded governments. We, we just don't want trouble. You're causing trouble. And when people are arguing about Everything, anything. They're arguing about their pets. They're arguing about their property lines. They're arguing about how big their trees are. They're arguing about whatever people argue about, right? People just will argue. And, and do, do, do people who lead governments like arguments? No, they don't. They don't. Why don't they? Because it's a nuisance to their domestic tranquility. So they don't like Paul. Why don't they like Paul? Because he's stirring stuff up. You stir it up, they don't like you. And in this case, the Jews really don't like him. 
Because his message is not that the Jews are all there is. His message is that God has more. His message is, I'm here to unveil or unwrap the rest of the mystery. So don't be discouraged that I'm a prisoner. Don't be discouraged that, that I'm suffering for you because this is your glory. This, this means that you as a Gentile are valuable. You are so valuable that I'm in prison for you. I want you to feel that today. Think of, think of the investment that many people have made in each of our lives. First of all, our own parents. Then trust, trust your spouse. Your spouse has, has sacrificed again and again and again and again. We could go on and on and on. Think of the people who've invested in you, whether they were teachers, educators, or whether they were neighbors or friends or, or parents of friends or, or co-workers or employers. All of us have been the recipients of people who have suffered for us or sacrificed for us or served us, and we're all the beneficiaries in our own church. We are all richer because of the energy that people have placed in us and they've invested in us and they've invested in our own children. I'll never forget the day our two oldest children professed faith in Christ. I went immediately to their Sunday school teachers and to their mission leaders who had invested so heavily in them, and I thanked them because this decision didn't happen in a vacuum. People served them week after 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 week, and they loved them, and they told them of Christ, and they showed them Christ, and they showed them Christ faithfully, and that paid off. Don't be discouraged because people are actually having to serve you or sacrifice for you because that is the nature of what it means to assign value. And we're Christian people. And we're attached to a value that is different than every other economic measure. You can't put a price on the souls of people. And the Gentiles were on the outside looking in at the covenants of God, the promises of God, the plan of God. In the Old Testament, they were kept out. But in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul becomes the ambassador for Christ, 2 Corinthians 5. And he goes to the Greek world and he tells them of Christ and they are converted and they are converted, and they are converted, and they are converted. And here he is in Ephesus, in modern-day Turkey. Turkey is not Israel. Modern-day Turkey, and he's finding people coming to Christ. And he's celebrating that, and he's saying, I, I'm in prison because I'm telling Gentiles that the gospel is for you. Don't be discouraged by that. That is your glory it is your glory that people will serve you so well, so fervently. Don't be discouraged. There's a second thing I hope you see here, and that is that this mystery does, it, it does change, if you will. It flips the script of the revelation of God. It doesn't suggest that the earlier script was wrong. It just says that the earlier script was insufficient. 
it, it, it was incomplete. It was not totally uh, revealed. But now it has. And this new script, or if you will, this longer script has more detail and has more wisdom. It has more value and has significance for everyone and it brings ultimately more glory to God. I don't want you to miss this. Watch what he says, verse 4. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations. Isaiah prophesied of the virgin birth, but not of the birth born in Bethlehem. Micah, the reverse. So they knew pieces, but they didn't know it all. But now we know it all. So he, he declares as such, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles, apostles and prophets by the spirit this mystery is that the gentiles are not second class not second class invariably we live in a culture today preachers have fueled some of this that suggests that uh, gentiles are by inference at least second class to the jews the jews have all of the advantage and i want to suggest to you that the apostle paul would argue vociferously against your point of view, friend. The Jews do not have an advantage here at all. The, the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body. Again, Paul loves that body metaphor. He uses it again and again throughout his letters, but I, I would use that illustration here. I've, I've got ten fingers, and none of them are unimportant. And the pain in my right pinky is just as important as the pain in my left index finger they're all part of the same body we can move from there to various other parts and make the same application when the body hurts the body hurts does it matter today whether it hurts in your leg or whether it hurts in your arm it doesn't matter it hurts well there's a different kind of hurt sure but it still hurts and i still want some re relief because it's me that's the point he's making we're all part of the same body and we're all partakers of the promise in Christ through the gospel we all are Gentiles Jews we're all partakers of the same gospel there's only one way to God that's the gospel the gospel of Jesus Christ the good news that God in the fullness of time sent his only begotten son in the world that he might die and give himself a sacrifice for sinners Jewish sinners Gentile sinners and that by believing in him and trusting in the work of his saving grace we might be saved saved from what saved from punishment for our sin saved from judgment for our sin saved from condemnation for our sin we've been saved thanks be to god and that is good news isn't it good news great news that which in the old testament appeared to be jewish only you had to convert to being a jew in order to receive this promise now he he 
The Apostle Paul makes it clear that it's not the full revelation of God. He's done away with those distinctly Jewish things. You don't have to submit to circumcision. You don't have to submit to the dietary laws. You don't have to submit to the ceremonial washings. You don't have to participate in the feasts of Pentecost or uh, tabernacles or any of the others. You don't have to have the Day of Atonement. Jesus fulfilled those things. The coming of Christ is the fuller revelation. The mystery has been unveiled. You have full knowledge of what God is doing. God is doing this because God intends for you to have this full knowledge. He has blessed you. He has He has graced you. He makes that clear again and again in this chapter, that that which God has done is a grace gift. I always think of this section of 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, verse 26, regarding the wisdom of God in sharing Christ with us. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written let the one who boasts boast in the lord what is paul saying in first corinthians the same thing he's saying only different in ephesians and that is that god intends through the gospel to to bring low the wisdom of the world and to elevate high and visibly the the wisdom of God, and in the kindness of God, in the grace of God, in the tender mercies of God, he's going to satisfy the requirements of the law for me. I'm a sinner. I don't satisfy the law. I'm I'm a lawbreaker. You are a lawbreaker. You don't satisfy the law. You can't satisfy the law. You can't unless you suffer, unless you are punished, unless you pay for your sins but the gospel the good news is that Jesus paid for you and now as Colossians uses this term our certificate of debt is canceled I've often remarked if if you've got a loan at a bank and Tomorrow, somebody calls you and said, I want you to know your entire loan has been forgiven. Tomorrow would be a really good day. Really good day. Well, that's the point, isn't it? It's good news when your debt is erased. But that's not old news, or at least that's not the old understanding of the news. That's the new understanding, because it's it's been a mystery. It's been hidden, but God has commissioned Paul to go to the Gentile world and tell them this. 
Do you realize it, it, it got Paul in a lot of trouble? <laughs> Turn to the book of Acts. Turn to the book of Acts, chapter 14. Look at verse 1. Paul is on his first missionary journey. And he's doing what Paul does. He's a missionary to the Gentiles. So he goes to Iconium. Iconium is a town in Asia Minor, today modern-day Turkey. So he's in Turkey. Now at Iconium, they enter together into the Jewish synagogue. So he's in a, he's in a Turkish town in a Jewish synagogue. And he spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their mind against the brothers. So they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace. The word of his grace. What, what was Paul's message? It was grace. Not keep the law, not become a Jew, but it was the message of the gospel, the gospel of grace. He bore witness to his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, stone them. Now, what is Paul's crime? He told Gentiles in the company of the Jews that the gospel was for you. And it aggravated the Jews because the Jews felt like that the way to God was to become a Jew. We are the keepers of the keys. We have the keys to the kingdom. You got to come through us to get to God. And Paul rejects that because the mystery has now been revealed that God intends that the keys to the kingdom would be owned by his son who has now extended this grace to all peoples and that he intends this gospel this good news of grace to go forth but the people didn't like that idea because it was not their viewpoint I'm reminded of, of this again and again as we serve with our mission people uh, around the world and particularly in Central Asia I, I've asked several of our believing friends over there. What, what do people in your country think about the religion of people in America? And overwhelmingly, they, they tell me these are people from almost universally Muslim countries where 99% of the people identify as Muslim, though they're not devout, they're not practicing, they're not, they're not going to the mosque every Friday or anything like that. They're, 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 they're being very, they're secular, just like Christians are in, in this country for the most part, secular. But the, the perception is, what, what do they think about people in America? And, and the standard retort is, the assumption is that every American is a Christian because Christianity is an American religion. Now you would say, that's silly. That, that, that just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And of course it doesn't. It's not true. But you know, never let truth get in the way of my story, right? 
Never let truth get in the way of what people believe. Never get truth, let truth get in the way of some sort of political story or anecdote or whatever. So we could go on and on and on. Truth is a secondary thing, except when it's not. Now, it's not true that every American's a Christian. It's not even remotely true. To these days, it's not even true that most Americans are Christians. But that is the perception in so many places that I have dialogued with third world Christians. Why is that? Because they believe that somehow there, there, there is a national religion here that's not the same as a national religion there and that you folks are over there and we're over here and there is a dividing barrier between us. If you're us, you're going to be this. And if you're you, you're going to be that. And those two religious expressions are not the same. That's similar, different, but similar to what's going on in the first century. The Jews believed we're Jewish and you are not. And you are not, so therefore you are not Jewish. And we're, we have the keys and you don't. But the mystery of the gospel is that God breaks down the wall of hostility and he invites all of these people to come to God through Christ. The wisdom of God destroys the wisdom of man. And this is good news. Because if you're going to create all of these hoops that I have to jump through to, to become, if you will, according to your system, according to your way, according to your heritage, according to your culture, if you're going to create all of that, those things are barriers. They are barriers. And in Christ, there are no barriers. The world loves to divide people into that group and this group and those and these. And we divide in all kinds of categories, race categories, money categories, gender categories. Uh, we could go on and on and on. We, we divide in these categories, nationalistic categories. And yet in the gospel, there are no categories except you are either with God or you are not. If you are alive, you are a sinner, and you are in need of rescue from you. You have poisoned your future by means of your own rebellion against God, and the only antidote for that is God. He's the only one that can forgive you. He's the only one that can restore you. He's the only one that can reconcile you. He's the only one that can fix it. You've been working on fixing yourself and blowing it. So his point is, God has given me a message, and this message has blown up in a negative way. They take up stones in Iconium. You read on in Acts 14, time won't permit us, but you read on in Acts 14, and you'll find that Paul is met with opposition everywhere he goes because he is announcing the good news that the gospel of Jesus Christ is also open to the Gentiles. They can come to the same God by means of the same process. And there are no barriers, cultural or 
nationalistic or economic or anything else. He has great affection for that. But you know the end of that story? In Acts 15, they call Paul to headquarters. Theologians call it the Jerusalem Council, the meeting of the high brass in Acts 15. He stands before James. They call Paul back to Jerusalem and give, give an explanation for what's going on. You're a Jew. You're speaking to Gentiles, inviting them to come to God through Jesus Christ. Tell us about that. What's going on? What's happening? James, the half-brother of Christ, is the pastor of the church at Jerusalem. Peter is there. Some of the other apostles, no doubt, are there. And they, they want to hear what Paul is doing. They call him back. In, Genesis, in Acts 15, he has to give an account. And the scripture de declares that they bless Paul. They said, in light of what God has done through you, we bless you. Go back to the Gentiles and preach this good news. There's one or two exceptions. Don't eat meat, sacrifice to idols. Don't eat anything with blood in it, etc. But, but go and announce this gospel. But he had to come back to headquarters and give an account. Why? Because this was mysterious. This was new news. This was different. We weren't raised this way. We don't know what to think of it. So Paul, come tell us what's going on. That's his point here in chapter 3 of this gospel. Verse 7, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace given to me by the working of his power. I'm the least valuable, the least of all saints, but yet he was given me this grace to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Let us be known as people who do not put up barriers to the gospel. I don't know what your history is. When I was young, being a Baptist was real restrictive. I've told you before, I'll tell you again, I, I, when, when I felt a, a call to ministry, there was a check in my own uh, confidence about whether or not I could measure up to the clarity of my forefathers. I never have been a drinker or smoker. I, I, I got the rhythm of a giraffe, so I, I really not, never was interested in being a dancer. Uh, I, I just, you know, so I was going to meet those criteria, but I didn't want to be the guy that was going to look at everybody and say, you know what, if you don't measure up to these, you know, these criteria, these four, five or six terrible sins, terrible because we said they were terrible, uh, then, then you're going to hell. I, I just didn't think that was what I wanted to do the rest of my life because that was kind of what my picture, what a preacher was. Well, I've been your pastor now 16 and a half years, and I, I think you know that's, that's not the way I view pastoring today. But that's the way pastoring used to be. The preacher would get up here, and by the time he got through, his armpits were, you know, flowing. He'd perspired through his jacket, tie was loosed. And he was prancing around, yelling, condemning. That was the model. I was saved under that model. <laughs> Go figure. But I just didn't want to be that guy. And I, I have since come to realize that some of that was truth, 
And some of it was just worldly or human barriers. Human barriers. Now, you've you got to be discerning as to know the difference between the two. You know, what is of God and what is not. That's why it's important to have people around you who can speak into your ear and say, maybe you need to rethink that. Or have you ever thought about this this way? It's always been good that God has surrounded us with voices who would help us to say that better. I, I think of the, I, I'm a, actually a better preacher today than I was when I came here 17, almost 17 years ago. And you know why? It's not because I know the Bible anymore, although I think I do. <coughs> but it's because I'm, I'm not as loose with words as I used to be. Some of you know exactly, because some of you have confronted me lovingly, lovingly. You've confronted me and said, you know what, maybe you ought not to say that that way. Do you realize when you say that, it really sounds like this? I had no idea. I was wrong. I had to fix that. So I fixed it. So I'm actually smarter today, wiser today, better today. You say, well, you're still pretty bad. Okay, but it's, I mean, you should have seen it back in the day. The point is, we, we put barriers up, and languages can put, language can put up barriers, and actions can put up barriers, facial expressions can put up barriers. Tone of voice can put up barriers. I mean, you can just, you can, you can, you can pigeonhole people or isolate people or condemn people with a look, with a word, or with a non-word, or with a, with a non-affection. Just think about it. It's important today that you've come into this room and people have welcomed you. Yes. Welcome behavior is welcoming behavior. And non-welcoming behavior is non-welcoming behavior. If you come in, sit down, don't smile, don't speak, don't shake hands, don't hug anybody, don't get near anybody, don't talk to anybody, guess what? You're going to have a bad experience because you are unhappy. You want the rest of us to be unhappy with you. That's not what we want. We need to get in your face and we need to say, be happy. Because we love you, because we know the gospel is real, and because you're just like us, you're having a bad day, but you don't have to have a bad day. That doesn't mean there aren't things that are heavy. I mean, Paul's in prison. Is that a bad day? I don't know, but I'm guessing it would be. He's in prison, but he said, don't worry about it. It's for your glory. Who is this guy? I'm in prison because of you, but it's not a problem. Because Jesus is worth it. Because Jesus in you is worth it. I think again of Daniel. Daniel gets thrown in the lion's den. You know, if he's, a, if he's an American Christian, you know what his attitude is going to be? Look, God, I was faithful. I prayed just like I was supposed to. And what did it get me? He got me that close to dying. You let me down. If he's an American Christian, he'd be throwing rocks at God. But instead, he doesn't. He says, you know, you did what you did. You're the king. You're an unbeliever. You did what unbelievers do. You treated me with disrespect. You don't value my God. That's not news. You don't value my God. You acted like an unbeliever. You threw me in the lion's den. 
But God is greater than your unbelief. He sends an angel, shuts the lion's mouth. They're hungry, though. They're sitting over there licking, 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 licking their lips. But they're not getting near me. But then the guys who put me in this jam, once they threw them in, they got their bones broken before they hit the ground because the lions were hungry and the angel was gone. Hear me, friend. God knows what he's doing. And this gospel is for the whole world. This gospel is for our world. This gospel is for everybody you're going to meet this week in Hines County, Mississippi. Everybody. And we need to share this gospel. I trust that you will not lose heart over what this gospel can do. There is one last thing. I'll show you this quickly. Verse 9 and verse 10, he's very clear that the goal of the gospel is to bring to light for everyone the plan of the mystery hidden so that, verse 10, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to rulers and authorities. Through the church. I said it a week ago, it needs to be said again because he said it again. He said it in chapter 2 and now he's repeated it in chapter 3. There are cosmic things going on. I have no idea what they are. But I want you to know, right now, in the heavens, in the heavenly places, that's the phrase he uses. He uses that phrase in chapter 1, he uses it in chapter 2, he uses it in chapter 3. In the heavenly places, there is a battle going on. There, there is a conversation going on. There is a debate going on. There are wars going on in the heavenly places. And what happens in this room week after week after week after week after week after week, and what happens in the classrooms week after week after week after week, and what happens in your life week after week after week after week, somehow, some way, matters in those cosmic realms. Somehow. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God, the various wisdoms of God, the, the magnificent, broad landscape, broad waterfront of the wisdom of God would be made known to the rulers and authorities. It is as if God is in heaven right now talking to Satan, talking to his demons and saying, there are people on the planet earth who love me, not you. And no matter what you do, they love me. No matter how you hurt them, prison, death, family pain, sorrow, difficulty, sickness, no matter how you inflict stealing and killing and robbing upon them, no matter, they love me. They are faithful. What happens in the church has an impact in glory. What happens in the church has an impact in your glory, your glory, in your realm of glory, where you're going in glory. What happens in the church? It's through the church. Paul is excited about the Ephesians because they are a church. Think of the application of that for you and for me. What is God doing right here in this room? I don't know. I don't know. I just know that if I'm not here, somehow it's not as much. There ought to be twice as many people here, three times as many people here, ten times as many people here. Why? Because that's what God is doing. He's 
changing people with the gospel, and he's bringing them together in this group called the church. And this church is his mighty army of folks that are doing business in the cosmos. I don't understand all that. I don't have to understand all that. It's a mystery to my pea brain. But it is still true. It is true. There's stuff going on. And what happens in your life today, what happens in this building today, what happens in our congregation today matters in the economy of God and in the plan of God. Don't ever devalue the church. Some of you know, I, I've said this many times, and I'll say it again. I'm a big fan of... Uh, telling your family what you want in your funeral. Since I've sat down with many of your families, it is always a help when you know kind of what they wanted in their funeral. So you say, well, that's such a morbid subject. Yeah, but it sure would help your wife. It sure would help your husband. It sure would help your kids if you just, you know, write down a few things. So I've written down everything. I mean, I'm a preacher. Who's going to preach? I don't know. I don't have a pastor. So any old pastor will do. And I'm telling him what to say. So, I mean, it's a cripple. A cripple can do this, right? I mean, it's just, it's, just, it's a layup. It's not, it's not a three-pointer. It's a layup. You can do this. Just do what I tell you. So... I've got a, several paragraphs for my girls because I assume, I, I have to assume that Susan and I will die together. That we probably won't statistically, but you have to assume they are. So Susan, and besides, Susan will get it wrong. So I'm going to get it right. I'm because in writing. So I've, I've got instructions for my funeral. I'll say this and conclude because it's going to make a point. But I've said in my instructions, whatever you do, whatever you say, make sure you brag on the church. It's fashionable today to hate the church. The church did me wrong. The church let me down. The church failed. You know, that's a, a bit of a self-indictment, friend. Because the church you're talking about is actually you. Church is not a building. Church is not a leader. The church is us. So, be careful throwing that mud around. You might get some on yourself. But I said, be careful not to rag or denigrate the church in any way because it may be fashionable to hate the church but you never heard that from me so don't stand up at my funeral and say my daddy hated the church because that's a lie 
Instead, I've told my girls, you stand up and you say, my dad loved the church. Because the church is where God saved him and where God grew him and where God developed him and where God brought him to the straight paths. The church is the place where God helped him, encouraged him, blessed him, strengthened him, rebuked him. The church is the place where Sunday after 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 Sunday, God met him and reminded him how much he loved him and used him in the lives of other people to love them. So don't let anybody stand up at my funeral and say, Dad hated the church because nothing could be farther from the truth. But in light of Ephesians chapter 3, I think I'm going to go back and I'm going to add a sentence. I'm going to say beyond that, None of us have any idea how much damage was done to Satan because of the church that my dad was privileged to be a part of. So we love the church. And the church sometimes is broken, sometimes is bruised, sometimes it's weak, sometimes it's not what it ought to be, but it's the church. And through the church, God is doing business against Satan today. I wonder today, how about you? What's God doing in your life? Is he clearing out the cobwebs? Is he lifting the fog? Is he showing you more clearly who he is, how much he loves you, what he's willing to do with your life? I bet he is. Through the church, God is putting Satan on the run through the church. Let's not devalue the church in any way. Pray now. God, thank you. Thank you for loving us and for caring for us right now. We love you. We thank you that you're at work in ways that are wonderful and you're at work right now. Give us grace as we follow you. Help us to obey you. Jesus' name I pray. Amen.